He was called the troubler of Israel, but was he really? That's a good question. We're going to talk about that today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Embry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, where we are looking at the Bible as we discover 1 Kings chapter 18. It's going to be interesting. We'll talk on it in a minute. Corey and Ryan are here. Corey, what's going on? I'm going to be taking a look at morning rituals in the times of the Bible. Ryan? Today I'm talking about how a discovery in the Mount Carmel region helps verify that Neanderthals were fully human. All right, very good, that's, that's interesting. Janice, what did you do today? Today, in times of famine. All right, very good. So get your Bible out as we open up the most important book of all and get your Bible guide if you don't have it, we'll tell you how to get one, so stay there. And let's listen to what God says as we open up the Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18. Now this is fascinating, so, Let's listen. First Kings 18, verses 17 through 24. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 24. First Kings chapter 18, 19, and 20 is what we read when we go through the Bible as we do so to this year. Uh, this is the 32nd time of going through the Bible, and it is something. Now in 1 Kings chapter 18, Ahab refers to Elijah as the troubler of Israel. The story is similar today. God speaks, but few people choose to listen. The Lord offers his word through the ebb and the flow of our lives. He attempts to gain our attention, but the power of God's holy word is critical and often forgotten. In the days of Elijah, God spoke through the prophets. Many true prophets were running for their lives because of the hell-bent Queen Jezebel. 
Jezebel and her false prophets worshipped the god Baal and his consort. Asherah Baal was the ancient Canaanite god that many had chosen to worship. It was a religion of selfish ambition that led people away from God. Now, Elijah called for a prophetic showdown who would be shown as the real prophet of the one true living God. And this is absolutely fascinating as we begin to study it. Let me tell you something. Go get your Bible guide because you're going to need it today. It is very interesting. The Bible tells us what God has said so that we can understand it correctly. And let me just say that if you don't have your Bible guide, I would encourage you to get a hold of yours by calling or writing to us. And you can go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And when you go there, click on the Bible guide. And when you do so, it'll take you to a page where you can donate. And thank you for your donations. We appreciate that. But uh, after that, you can go to another page where you can download the files just as they are printed. So you're seconds away from joining us on the Troubler of Israel, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 to 24. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that, that we would hear what you're saying. Help us not to read into the word of God, but help us to read from the word of God to change our hearts. Teach us your way, Lord, and show us your path in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen and amen. Now, this first Kings is fascinating. First Kings chapter 18, beginning with verse 17, because other years we have studied the early part, but never have we studied this. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken, forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, what was he saying? Elijah reveals that the real troublers of Israel are people who turn away from God. Actually, when we worship the wrong God, we bring trouble into our life, our home, and our city. You see, when we worship the wrong God, we give glory and honor to the wrong one. And when we do that, we have a problem. Because the Lord God, according to the Bible, is the one who created and made us, beloved. And we need to understand that. We need to hear what the Lord says. That's very important. I think that there are times when people begin to worship and they're not thinking and they just worship with words that don't mean anything. But we need to worship with the word of God in our hearts. We need to worship having read and see and understand what God is saying to us. This is very important, beloved. Keep that in mind. Now, let's go on. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 19 says, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all of the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then I want you to follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word, because everybody was looking around to see who was, who was going to win this, Lord, this uh, particular battle. 
Elijah asked Ahab to gather the people along with the prophets of Baal and Asherah. You see, false prophets will never win. God is the victor. God is the one who wins because God is the creator of all things. Beloved, we need to hear that because there are so many people today that worship a kind of God in their government. But remember, the government is not God. Keep that in mind. There's not a government in the world that is God. Now, we work towards moving governments towards God, but God is the one who we serve and we worship, beloved. That's why we ask Jesus Christ to come into our heart and be the Lord of our lives, because we worship him and only him in Jesus' name. Now, that becomes important. Let's go on and learn more, because in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So you know what the people did? All the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now, this is a really interesting test. Listen carefully. Elijah puts God to the test. He tests God in front of the people. When God is put to the test, God always wins. Beloved, we need to understand this. We need to get it because this is important. As we worship the God of the universe, the God who created all things, as we worship the God who created time itself, who knows our birth and our death, knows exactly where we're at every step of our lives. As we worship that God who gave us eternal life, well, things are different than when we worship a God who is the God of this or the God of that. No, no. We want to worship the Lord, who is God over all of it. And so, beloved, when we do that, we change the way things are in our life. We need to listen to the Lord. We are worshiping. And when we read his Bible, this is the book of books. The 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years, and yet all with the same theme. What is that theme? The theme is Jesus Christ. It's Messiah. It's Yeshua HaMashiach, beloved. We need to understand that God has laid it out for us in front of us. It's here right now. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God. He is the Father, and he is the one that we pray to. We say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life and be the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, I believe you died on the cross and rose again. And in Jesus' name, do this today. And we said together, amen. And when we pray that prayer, we say, okay, Lord, we're going to choose to worship you, the only God that ever really was and that ever really is today in Jesus' name. Keep that in your heart and in your mind when you pray today. Hi, Rod Hembry. We go through the Bible in one year. It's exciting. It's great. And you can join us by searching Bible Discovery TV on your phone. 
That's right, on your phone, your iPhone, or your Android phone. And when you do so, you'll find the app. You can download the app and watch it anytime you want. Never miss a program right here on Bible Discovery TV. We'll see you there. As we continue to read and study through the time period of the kings of Israel and Judah, we're going through a lot of narrative history. So what that means is we're going to be getting into a lot of human interactions. And I think this is, uh, it surprises sometimes people because when, when they think of the books of Kings and Chronicles, they think of, you know, military history and political history. And it certainly is that, but there's also a lot of personal accounts uh, that, that we find here. And so as we read through this, we're going to run into situations where we see people of this time period uh, going through their cultural mourning rituals. So today, you and I are going to be kind of deconstructing these mourning rituals and trying to understand them. Take a look. The Bible is very consistent in its portrayal of ancient Israelite mourning people grieving the loss of loved ones, tragedy in the community, offenses against God, devastating warfare and the like, are described as putting on sackcloth, tearing their clothes, taking off shoes, sitting on dust and ashes, putting dust and ashes on their heads, cutting or shaving their hair, and fasting. These actions could be done all together, individually, or in any combination, and likely went along with wailing and appropriate grieving songs and laments. There has been quite a bit of research that has gone on in trying to understand the significance of these mourning rituals, and even in attempting to track where they came from. It's been noted that all these practices involve humiliation of the mourners and in some way connect them to their own mortality, in a sense, becoming like the dead themselves, naked, returning to dust, not eating, and generally losing the physical markers of living people, like growing hair. As it is often said, there's no better time than a funeral to contemplate one's own mortality. In this sense, these mourning rituals would be grieving the specific loss of a loved one's life while broadly bemoaning the overall human condition of mortality before God. There has also been a noted progression of practice when it comes to sackcloth. In the early passages of the Bible, clothes are torn and removed, and then sackcloth is worn. In later tradition, sackcloth is worn in addition to torn garments. Sackcloth was a rough garment in the style of a loincloth. This dress, paired with going barefoot, has been seen as an association with the dead by some, as noted above, and by others, it's seen as removing a layer of civilization, as going back to how life would be without all of the systems that man has in place. In this case, it would be a way of remembering who we are, and that in the end, we're still mortal, even in the midst of our societal greatness. As Adam and Eve had to leave the garden just clothed and without shoes, so humanity is. Death is a great equalizer. There are also a few theories about putting dust and ashes on one's head during mourning. An older theory cites an ancient practice of burial in which a mound of dirt was put over the grave. This theory posits that mourners carried baskets of dirt to the gravesite on their heads to build the mound, leaving them with dirty hair and clothing, a sign to all that they had been involved in a funeral. This practice could then have been remembered by the act of putting dust and ashes on the head. 
Another theory comes from archaeologists excavating Beersheba. They discovered that the dirt of the city's streets was mixed with ashes. This process recycled household ash and had the benefit of increased durability. So when mourners are described as sitting on dust and ashes, these archaeologists put forward that they were sitting on public streets, conducting their mourning for all to see. I hope that that demystified the process somewhat for you, because like I said, as we continue reading through the scripture, we are going to see elements of these mourning rituals, not only in the personal accounts of people that we read about in the scripture, but there's also going to be allusions to these mourning rituals throughout the scripture. So when we get into the, the prophetic literature of the Bible, there's often references back to parts of these mourning rituals, and even in the Psalms and the Proverbs as well. So it's important in that way to understand what's going on so that when it comes up, uh, we have a better grasp on what the Bible is trying to communicate to us. That's very interesting about the culture and about the different things that they do. That's excellent. Uh, one of the things that we need to remember is we need to understand the culture. We need to understand the times at which they, the Bible speaks to us so we hear what God is saying. Mm -hmm. That's very important. All right, Ryan, you're up. Okay, well, today we read the famous account of Elijah's great victory at Mount Carmel. And in addition to that, I'm willing to bet that Mount Carmel has seen its fair share of action over the years. But this famous site has even more history here than you might realize. In fact, the region has yielded some stunning fossils that have provided some key answers regarding the famous Neanderthal man. In fact, some skulls were discovered in a cave there in the 1930s, which would help to verify that Neanderthals weren't sub some apish subhuman brutes, as many of us have, have been led to believe. No, no, they were 100% human. Check it out. Due to the evolutionary propaganda constantly being pushed by pop science, public education, mainstream media, museums, and the like, many people have been brainwashed into believing numerous scientific quote-unquote facts, which have later proved to be totally false. For example, it has become a cultural stereotype to picture Neanderthals as subhuman bent-kneed brutes. However, the less-than-human status of Neanderthals is now being dramatically overturned though the public remains largely unaware of that fact. Indeed, though initially thought by the majority of evolutionists to be a much lesser evolved being, based on new findings, many experts now regard Neanderthal man as fully human. Even some museum displays that once depicted Neanderthals as apish subhuman brutes have now been updated to give them a very human appearance. This dramatic makeover is based upon evidence from paleontology, archaeology, and even genetics. For example, from the nearly 500 Neanderthal skeletons now recovered, fossil evidence clearly shows that they are not significantly different from anatomically modern humans. Although a Neanderthal's elongated skull shape and larger brain case is distinct, and its skeleton is generally more robust, neither of these two features is outside the range of human variation. As a matter of fact, such Neanderthal-like features are even seen in modern human populations. Archaeology also confirms that Neanderthals were 100% human. Undoubtedly, the most compelling archaeological evidence for the fully human status of Neanderthals, in addition to their beautiful sculptures, use of cosmetics, jewelry, musical instruments, and the like, is the ceremonial burial of their loved ones, a defining aspect of what it means to be human. 
If this were not enough, many Neanderthals are found buried together with other anatomically modern humans. While there are many examples of this, perhaps the most interesting site for Bible students is a cave in Israel in the Mount Carmel region. Here, in the very same area where the prophet Elijah called down fire from heaven and eliminated the prophets of Baal, three relatively complete Neanderthal skulls were discovered together with modern-looking skulls. As one researcher rightly concludes, that Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans were buried together constitutes strong evidence that they lived together, worked together, intermarried, and were accepted as members of the same family, clan, and community. In fact, later genetic analyses confirmed just that. Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, that is human beings, were interfertile and interbred. Neanderthal genes are present in modern populations. According to the biological species concept, the ability to interbreed and produce fertile offspring is the defining factor of what a species is. Hence, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are the same species. They're both human beings. Therefore, just as there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, there is also no difference between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. We are all one blood, and the same Lord is over all of us, and is rich to every human being who calls upon him. You know, it's really, really important what and who we listen to. While the majority of the world has been deceived into believing that the Neanderthals were subhuman, the hard facts show just the opposite. They were human beings just like you and me. And this should really cause us to ask ourselves what else we've been lied to about. It's important to understand that pop science, public education, mainstream media, and other mediums like those are pushing their own anti-God evolutionary narrative and agenda. And despite what they claim, much of what they push as facts aren't facts at all. You just witnessed that in this segment that you just saw. The world is being indoctrinated with this stuff. And parents, I strongly urge you that if you can, get your children into a good Christian school right away. Because the world is trying to steal your children's minds and hearts by undermining the truth of God's word. Evolution is the lie, not God's word. It's like the, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Well, I'm out of time for now, but we'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. And that's really important because a lot of people uh, would not understand that, that they're being tricked, you know. And it's not that they're being tricked, but they're just being shoveled off of the, the word of God. And I find that to be really challenging. So people have to come back to the idea that God tells the truth. Yeah, really, it's just about asking questions. You yeah. know, how do they know that and how do they know this? And, you know, it's, it's just a good practice. Very interesting, Ryan. Very interesting. Janice? Speaking of telling the truth, I have read 1 Kings chapter 18, again, with a different way that I've read it before. And that's what I love about the Bible and praying before you start to read. Uh, we meet this man named Obadiah here. And I titled this In Times of Famine because... Samaria was in a time of famine. And we, we've read about how God provided for Elijah through this time and for a widow and, and her household. But now we're, we're seeing that God wants Elijah to meet with King Ahab. God has appointed a time for him to meet with him. And we find out about this man named Obadiah, who we learn is in charge of Ahab's household. And we also learn a little bit more about Obadiah here in that when Jezebel was massacring the prophets of God, Obadiah hid a hundred of them, 50 at a time in caves. So 50 in one cave and 50 in another cave. And this was really 
brave of Obadiah because, let's face it, Queen Jezebel was out for death. She was massacring the prophets. And had she found out what Obadiah was doing, it would have meant certain death for him. But he knew that he had to do that. What am I talking about? Well, let's go down. We know that God has told Elijah he wants him to meet with Ahab. He has appointed a time. So Ahab sends Obadiah and himself out to look for water so that they can feed and, and, and water their, their horses and their animals. And so Obadiah goes one way and Ahab goes another way. And Obadiah runs into Elijah and he says, oh, my Lord. And he bows down and, and Elijah says, I want you to go back and tell Ahab that I'm here. And Obadiah just gets so afraid because he he goes into this story and he says, every time, every time somebody comes back to my king and says they've seen Elijah and that you're coming, he says, the spirit of God carries you away somewhere and then they die. And he said, I'm going to go back to the king. And and you can hear the panic in his voice. He's saying, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell the king and the spirit of God is going to take you away again. And Obadiah is afraid now for his life. He said, the king will kill me. What a different man that Obadiah seems to have become in this time of famine. Elijah says to him, as the Lord of all hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. When Obadiah heard the words of God, when he heard that word from the Lord, he was able to go out and tell King Ahab, Elijah is going to meet with you today. And he could do it. Maybe he had fear. We don't know. But he did it. And so what is my point today? Oba, Obadiah had to trust the word of God. In times of difficulties, in times of confusion, we need to come and stand on the word of God because it brings us peace. It brings us truth. It brings us stability. Why? Because it's God's word. It's God's foundation. And you know what? It's easy for me to sit here and tell us to be strong, to tell me to be strong. But we do have those moments. I have those moments where I need to remember that I need that relationship with God. I need to spend time with him in prayer. I need to spend time in his word and get it in my heart and in my life. Obadiah was scared until he heard the word of God through Elijah. Then he went and did what Elijah said. Let us stand on the word of God today, too. Today we pray at the end of the program. Thank you for joining us. We pray, Lord, I want to pray that I would share my testimony with as many people as possible in Jesus' name. Amen. That's very important. Also remember that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 3.30 to 4.30, we're going to listen to you live on Facebook and YouTube through our prayer meeting. So join us and we will pray for you on Bible Discovery TV. We're streaming it live. Join us there.